0: Out of here. You've got to come back to Sicily.
1: Why do you say that?
0: Because if you stay here, you're going to die. Then you're going to suffocate or get crushed by a boulder or get burned alive. Carl, what? No, I know it. I know it. I've seen it over and over again. I've been warned, Flashman. And if you stay here, your life is just going to be snuffed out.
2: Look, I don't know what this is about, but it's
0: about life and death. Your life, your
2: death. I've
0: never felt safer in my life. That's an illusion, Flashman. That's fool's paradise. You know what happens to all my boyfriends? Hardly any of them get out alive. And if you stay here, the same thing is going to happen to you.
2: Charles, I can't remember if it was last episode or two episodes ago, but we were talking about Joel's departure from the series, Rob Morrow, the actor, leaving the show. And we don't know exactly. We know that it's coming, but, Charles, you don't know exactly how it happens, and you... Kind of jokingly said, what if he just like, are they just going to kill him or something? <laughs> and this episode seems like there's offering a lot of options uh, to kill Joel.
1: Yeah, it's definitely an episode where they're trying to gradually wean us off of Joel. Mm-hmm. The signs are there. It's evident. You don't got to go digging for it. Subtext not
2: needed. It's immediate. <laughs> it's in her face. It's even a title of the episode. Yeah, the title. Wait, what's the title of the episode? The Great Mushroom? Yeah. Oh, that's uh, weaning us off Joel, you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, they. I mean, you can't not have missed it. I missed it. What are you talking about?
1: Well, I, like the mushroom. Like it says like it's connected to all of us. And like, even if I'm
2: gone, you'll still feel the, the influence of the mushroom. Oh, yes, yes, yes. The metaphor that they bring at the end, uh, which we're going to talk all about in this episode. I guess let's just go ahead and dive in, Charles. This is the Northern Overexposure podcast. We're talking about season six right now. Joel Fleischman, you know, as we were just saying, maybe being weaned off the show. We're kind of, uh, or we're being weaned off Joel Fleischman to continue watching Northern Exposure. And Charles, I've seen the show. It's one of my favorite shows of all time. Season six, I've only watched once before. All the other seasons I would go back and rewatch. And um, this one, kind of watching again for the first time in a long time. And Charles... You are new to the show, so this is your first time watching every episode. So you're kind of getting a real fresh look, and as we already said, you you maybe have had a couple things spoiled for you, but you don't fully know what is going to happen. Like, how how is Joel leaving the show? And I'll tell you, this is not Joel's final episode either. I didn't think that this would be his last one. It, yeah. it didn't... Yeah. There will have to be like a, a send-off, you know, or... He will die, like you said, <laughs> and it will kill him somehow. Well, talk to me about who wrote and directed this episode. All right. So we've got the director, James Heyman, who has directed uh, many episodes of Northern Exposure, starting with the season five finale, Lovers and Madmen. Uh, then he also directed in this season, Shofar So Good, and now The Great Mushroom. And uh, he'll be back for one more episode this season. And the writers, Diane Frollov and Andrew Schneider, you know, we got the classic exec producers of Northern Exposure along with David Chase. Here's a little interesting bit of trivia. The air date mm-hmm. for this episode was January 4th, 1995, meaning it was a Wednesday. This is when the show switches from Monday nights to Wednesday night. I think the last episode was um, like December 12 or four, you know, somewhere in the middle of December. So they obviously took a break for Christmas and they come back now on a Wednesday. Oh, okay. This is the last time slot change, right? Yeah, this is the this is the first and last and uh you know, obviously a lot of people have talked about how season 6 um dips in quality and uh the ratings also started to fall pretty low in season 6. And some people have accredited that to, you know, just like the change in direction with executive producer, David Chase, perhaps Rob Morrow's departure from the show. Like we're sensing it. We can feel that this is changing and we don't like it. Uh, But other people also say that that time slot shift to Wednesday uh, really messed up the ratings for the show. Now, if we're looking at ratings for this episode, I've got thirteen point eight million, which was a drop from last episode Real Politic was eighteen point one. Oh, so the drop are, yeah, of that's like five draw. mil. Yeah. And yeah, I mean the this is the lowest. This has got to be the lowest uh ratings of any episode so far. Let's see, what did I say? Thirteen point eight? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, obviously, like, uh, in the first season— It goes season, down worse. <laughs> well, no. I was, I was going to say this is the worst rating that they've ever had. But, no, obviously, in the first season, it was it was still a smaller show. You know, it hadn't really blown up. But by, like, the second season, we start getting in the, you know, over 15 million views. And then third season, like, in the 20s, uh, 20 of millions. And I forget what the highest rated—I remember the highest rated episode, I believe, is Wake Up Call— um trying to remember what the number was on that. Let's see. 26.9 million. Oh, wow. But yeah, so we're kind of in a slump. This is, uh, does it get, yeah, I mean, it definitely, the ratings will go up and down from here, but they they definitely go, they get lower. <laughs> 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 this isn't the lowest of the low. Well,
1: let's talk about how we feel about the episode yeah. up front, like we usually been doing.
2: Lee, how do you feel about this episode? Uh, I thought it was, Uh, pretty good for season six. Um, I actually really liked the Phil and Michelle storyline. Probably my favorite scene in the episode involves them and it's in their storyline. I like, um, the metaphor of the mushroom, Mm -hmm. uh, that we're kind of talking about already. And we'll, we'll get into that whole plot line, but that plot line is, uh, Maybe my least favorite. That's not saying it's bad. I actually really because I just said I I like that metaphor and I like where they go with that. But you know the title of the episode, The Great Mushroom. I remember this episode and I remember this plot line just from the title. Um, but surprisingly, it was um, well. You know maybe maybe I would. I'm trying. It's between that and so I guess there's another. The third plot line would be with Ed and his fear of computers. So I guess I could I could put that. Below the great mushroom, like I, I, might, I, I might like the mushroom plot line more than Ed's. Well, mm. what, what, what was your reaction to those? Yeah, three? Uh
1: kind of similar to yours, where I felt that Ed's computer plot line was—it's so overdone, like that, that type of plot line where it's like I'm afraid of technology, I don't want to progress forward. Oh wait, I realize that I can use it to my advantage, and I can use it to connect with other people. And, you know, bada-beam, bada-boom, the computer is not my friend. So, <laughs> yeah, that I, I don't want to give them too much
2: mm, it's fine. Like it's a pain just, on it. Yeah, it's fine for me, but it's not too thrilling. I don't know. Sorry, keep going. It Yeah, well, me.
1: it's because it was written in the 90s. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, that, true, like, the
2: concept of that is is
1: new to them. Yeah. yeah so, true. yeah, I, I can't be too mad at it. But the... Phil and Michelle plot line, like you were talking about, that does have a great
2: scene, and I, I bet we're thinking about the same yeah, exact thing. We've got to be. We're, we probably the got one on the. Uh, we won't. We won't go into it, but the one on like the porch.
1: Yeah, really well done, right there. Overall, it's it's got some quirky northern exposure stuff in there, so it's a little bit of a return to form. But I definitely would not say that this is like my favorite of all the episodes. But I mean, they really did get the engine running. Like yeah. I, I was thinking yeah. more about Northern Exposure. I, I, you know, this is kind of a messed up thing to say, <laughs> but like, it's not, okay, let me take that back. It's not a messed up thing to say. It's just more morose, I guess. But are you familiar with that office quote when they say like, I think it's spoken by Ed Helms character. He says, I wish I would know you were living in the good old days before they were gone. Something to that effect. Mm. I, I probably just butchered that quote. Uh, okay. But I, I think I get what you're getting at though. Yeah, so like, really, what I'm trying to say is like, I wish, uh, I wish I knew how good we had it. Yeah, in like <laughs> seasons two through four, mm-hmm. before you know we were out of it. In a lot of ways, I wish we could just go back and do them again. Just yeah. do Northern yeah. Overexposure Podcast Redux. <laughs> Redux. Yeah.
2: Um, no. Yeah, I think I can agree with you. This is not uh, this episode. I do not like as much of some of those earlier seasons, uh, but. If I had to, like, at a glance, talk about season six, this would be in the running. I just remember that title. Like I told you, like, I haven't watched this season for probably 10 years or more, but I remembered this episode. Um, And actually, I can't remember. I was, like, reading an interview about... Well, it was with Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider, and this was back in like when we were recording for season three or something, or Mm -hmm. maybe it was like right before we were getting into season four, because the the interview was, I think, about, you know, working with Northern Exposure and how the showrunners, uh, Brandon Fauci had left and David Chase was coming in. And so they had interviewed Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider, asking them about like what what's what are you guys going to do with like America's Favorite Show? Like, you know, now that the showrunners are leaving. And I just remember them talking about like the person who was like shadowing them or what, you know, interviewing them, writing up this piece, had been following them around and was like in their office, you know, where they had like, I I would assume like uh, note cards, like tacked up on a board and like all these ideas written out on the wall. And they talked a little bit about, this mushroom, the great mushroom uh, that they talk about oh. in this episode, the armillaria. Um, so they had been thinking about this idea, I guess, for some time. And then they were like, yeah, let's put this into an episode. Hey, it's Lee. The article I'm referring to is in the LA Times, and I'm going to put a link to that in our episode description. Um. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I guess there was a long-winded way of me saying this is one that I remember um from the title. It's a title that sticks out to me. Um, but I guess we'll see at the end of the season. You know, we'll have to rank them all and see what we think. Does will this make my top five? I don't know. Mm. Uh let's let's dive into the plot. Do you want to just start with the first scene or
1: Yeah, let's let's start with the cold open right here, which is I, I kind of knew right off the bat it was a dream sequence because <laughs> he, he didn't have a beard. Yeah. Uh, oh. But by he I mean Joel. Yeah. So yeah, that Good the, episode, the episode starts off with Joel in a hunting hat. He's hunting. Uh, Actually, I don't think it's revealed what he's hunting.
2: Yeah, I was thinking it was maybe some sort of bird. He had like a hunting dog with him that he calls Duff. Oh, it's a
1: bird. It's a bird. I, I just okay. watched the scene. Okay. Yeah. <laughs>
2: uh, there's a really interesting score here. I, I'm assuming that's David Schwartz. It's like orchestral and it has this like thrilling building, um, almost like... Adventure, action, adventure quality, and this type of music, uh, this type of score does recur throughout the episode with these dream sequences. As you're saying, Charles, like you, you could tell this was a dream sequence from a good catch with with you know ch- seeing Joel's not all long hair and beard, and he's not man and ash Joel. He's apparently he's uh, Maggie's dream version of Joel. Because this is Maggie's dream. But, but what happens in the dream?
1: Yeah, he tries to chase off after the bird and he gets caught in some quicksand and it keeps pulling them further and further down. And he tries to get his dog, Duffy. Duff. 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 No, why? Okay. <laughs> Duff tries to call Duff over to pull him out, but he just keeps sinking further and further in. And that's, uh you know, in my mind, I think that's subtext for Maggie believing that she's dragging Joel down. Mm, Like he is just pulling him down into the core of the earth and he cannot escape.
2: Yeah. And we actually get to see, I think we get to see Joel's head submerge into like the muddy quicksand. I know we definitely get a shot of like the quicksand and then like a bubble, like bloop. Mm -hmm. Like it's like he totally gets dragged under. And that's when Maggie shoots up in bed. She's just awoken from a nightmare. Uh, She kind of has like a sort of like gasping spell and then Moose opening titles. We're in the episode now.
1: (laughs) Have you, uh, you've listened to uh, John Mulaney's
2: New in Town, right? The 2012 special? I'm pretty sure I have, but go ahead and tell me. Maybe it'll jog my memory.
1: Yeah. He had a bit in like the first five minutes of his set where he was saying that um, I was a very nervous kid. I was very anxious all the time when I was younger. What's nice is that some of the things I was anxious about don't bother me at all anymore. Like, uh, I always thought that quicksand (laughs) was going to be a much bigger problem than it turned out to be. Because if you watch cartoons, quicksand is like the third biggest thing you have to worry about in adult life behind real sticks of dynamite and giant (laughs) anvils falling on you from the sky. I used to sit around and think about what to do about quicksand. I never thought about how to handle real problems in adult life. I was never like, oh, what's it going to be like when relatives ask to borrow money? Now I've gotten older and not only have I never stepped in quicksand, I've never even heard about it. No one's ever been like, hey, if you're coming down to visit, take I-90 because I-95 has a little quicksand in the middle. Looks like regular (laughs) sand, but then you're going to start to sink into it.
2: Yeah, that is so true that quicksand used to be such a staple of not only old cartoons, but you know, old action serials and things like that. And I feel like we talked about this before, Charles, but I can't remember if it was like Radiolab or This American Life or some podcast that they were talking about this phenomenon of quicksand and how it's kind of like not even really culturally relevant anymore. Does this sound familiar to you? No, I don't think we talked about this. It was a whole... Like critique into that period, um, or I guess this past period when quicksand was uh, a very popular trope in TV or comic books or other media. And the person looking into this or giving their spin on it was relating it to like the current political environment, like some sort of stagnation, or maybe it had to do with the economy. But I've always thought that's very interesting and you know things like that, maybe this is just one person's interpretation, but I feel like there's a lot of things like that that we don't fully realize and maybe it's only easy to see it uh, in hindsight. Hey, it's Lee. That episode of Radiolab that I was talking about is called Quicksand with four A's. I'm going to link that episode in our episode description. So if you'd like to learn more about that, go ahead and click the link and listen. I also remember things like uh, the the success of the show X Files. You know, it came during a time uh, when you know government was doing really well, like the economy was doing great. But you know, the success of the show, some people were saying, was because like because uh, everything looked so good on the outside, we always thought there there might be something secretly going on underneath. Like, you know, the government is – the truth is out there and the government is hiding it.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally by that. Because I think that, like, like, quicksand is obviously something from nature. And that reminds me of, like, those man-eating plants that you would hear about. Mm-hmm. Like, ginormous plants that would just, like, <laughs> swallow a man whole. Like, that was also something that they talked about a lot in cartoons that, like, got children thinking about that. Uh, I, I do think that's very interesting to hear about. It's, like – it's very similar to – the sentiment around Watergate, like around the mm. 1970s, where did, trust in government was like, you know, at its lowest. And so the media that was being consumed around that time kind of followed in that same nature right there. And like, I think like another one off the top of my head would be Ted Lasso during mm-hmm. the quarantine period. Because oh, yeah, yeah. that was something that, like people really gravitated towards. Like, I, I don't, I think it's a great show, but I don't know if it would have reached its heights if it didn't premiere at that certain time. Exactly. Yeah. It
2: was uh, the right time. And it's like what we, it's also like, well, I was going to say, maybe it was like a, maybe it was a product of the time, but obviously they were shooting that before, you know, it was was finished, but it definitely probably shaped the next seasons and things like that. It's just a perfect storm, I guess, for, for Ted Lasso. Speaking of, sorry. What's up? We, we, I still haven't seen season three. We got to do a, a Patreon oh, on like yeah. the first episode. We should. Have, have you seen any of it or?
1: No, I haven't okay. seen any of it, but. We'll, we'll watch it. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if this counts, but it, I, I had the ice cream flavor of it from Ooh. Jenny's. Yeah. You told yeah. me about that. What is it? What was it exactly? Uh, Biscuits with the boss. Love it. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> it's got like little, like the biscuits that he makes, the fictional thing. Yeah. <laughs> like put into there. It's pretty good. Like, Best. I I don't know if I would pay $7 to buy another pint of it,
2: <laughs> but but it's good. Yeah, he, it was it was a nice novelty at the time. Let's get back to Northern Exposure. Do you want to just do the Maggie Joel mushroom plot line first? Uh yeah, let's stick with that. So, after the nightmare that Maggie has, after the opening titles, we are greeted with a view of Sicily uh in snow. Again, this is January now, the time that this uh, show is airing. And Usually the chronology of the show aligns with the real world calendar, like more or less. So yeah, we're in the winter in Sicily now, snow is back, and it's Joel's birthday coming up soon, says Maggie, and she's getting hauling uh, to make a cake. He's actually piping on the decoration on the cake as she's talking about this all right now, and um, she announces that she's going to go up to Man and Ash and see him for his birthday. She's going to bring this cake. However, I wrote this down. I thought it was funny. Hauling is piping the words, happy birthday, Joel, on the cake. But Maggie sees it as happy birthday, Jeel. He's like, no, that that it's actually, it's an O. It's like O-E-L, Joel. And She's like, okay, sure. But uh, I don't know why it made me think of this. So, sorry, I'm going off on too many tangents. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> Did you ever see that movie Be Kind Rewind with Jack Black and Moss Def? It's like a Michelle Gondry uh, movie.
1: Yeah, I saw, uh, I mean, okay. So, <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, I'm going to say it first and you're going to probably be disappointed in me. That's like one of the only movies I watched that I, I just didn't finish. I saw like 25% of it. I was with a friend
2: and then I like turned to her and I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. It's like, <laughs> I don't want to finish this movie. (laughs) I would say give it another shot. But also, I would also acknowledge that it is a very specific um, brand of humor that I don't know why, like, definitely resonates with me. Because I also, I'm a huge fan of uh, Michelle Gondry's um, The Green Hornet with Seth Rogen. And I, I feel like those two movies have a similar type of humor, also are largely panned i think i think i know a lot of people who really like be kind rewind but i don't know anyone else who likes the green hornet at least as much as i do (laughs) um but there's a really dumb joke and it's early on so you probably saw it in uh in be kind rewind where uh like dad or grandpa is like leaving town he's like i'm gonna leave you the video rental store you got to look after it and whatever you do like keep Jerry out of the store. Jerry is Jack Black. He's like a really an annoying character, very accident prone. He's like, you have to keep Jerry out. And as he's saying this, he's like on the bus as it's as it's departing. And Mostef's like, what? What's that last thing? What'd you say? He's like, keep Jerry out. And Mostef can't hear it. So um, Danny Glover is his like, grand- grandpa or his dad or whatever. He like breathes heavily on the glass window of the bus and he Writes like in the fog, keep Jerry out, but it's backwards, you know. Because if you're Mm -hmm. on most deaf's perspective, you see the letters, you know, in a sort of mirrored orientation. So it reads, "Peak your edge to keep Jerry (coughs) out," and he just keeps like he writes it down on a piece of paper, and he's like, "Peak your edge too." What does it mean, "Peak your edge too"? I don't know. That's just like dumb, like cartoon humor that I really liked and. Happy birthday, Giel. I don't know. It just reminded me of PQ Edge. No, 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 no.
1: I think that works out right there. Um, oh gosh. I'm sorry. It's yeah. going to be like the tangential yeah, podcast. Yeah, this is great. I love this one. You ever seen... The uh, I know you've seen this. You've seen Hot Rod, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. It's the one where uh, it's that scene where Andy Sandberg's saying bye to Isla Fisher, and he's like, I think you look uh what is it oh it's um you look like I'm, I'm gonna do the take one more time i'm gonna do the take one more time it's it's the scene where andy sandberg's saying goodbye to isla fisher he says all right bye you look pretty she turns around and goes what'd you say i said you look <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's like too nervous
2: to like actually uh ask her out he's like very nervous around her.
0: um well i gotta go i gotta feed buddy but very nice to see you rod
1: yeah you too you look pretty. What did you say? Uh, I said you look shitty. Good night, Denise.
2: Yeah, sorry. I don't know why we we're just really giggly about this. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm of sorry, of like, but, listeners.
0: But, no, no, let's yeah, get that, back into it.
2: Yeah. So uh, Maggie's going up to Man Ash. Uh, Anything you wanted to say about that scene with uh, Hauling piping the birthday cake?
1: Oh, yeah. I, I called it. I knew that I was going to come back because I read it as Maggie or Hauling. It was either one of those two did not recognize Joel at that moment. as a, a common thing. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, okay. Like, this is obviously... They're setting up something right here. They don't even know his name. So they don't know his essence of who this character is. So at the end, it's going to come back.
2: Yeah, even his name, Joel, which is, you know, should be familiar, is uh, looking more and more foreign to them. You know, Jeel. Now, oh, it's it's Dark Joel. <laughs> uh But the next scene... Uh, Maggie is canoeing up to Mananash. And I think this is the first time we see it in snow because it's also snowy in this town of Mananash, which we've been in before. And uh, she's looking around for Joel and she finds him carving a totem. I think that's what he's doing. He's like carving a, I think it's a totem, right? Yeah, he's like yeah, doing yeah, some yeah. wood carving on a long you know, piece of wood. And uh, she seems almost shocked to to see him and uh joel he seems pretty thrilled to see her like very happy excited she's here um surprised but in a good way whereas maggie's more shocked
1: right and that shock continues to the next scene where she makes her way inside joel's little little hovel there's no (laughs) indoor plumbing there's no outdoor plumbing they're drinking bone broth i want to say i forgot it's some sort of soup
2: yeah he gives her some like some broth or some bone broth or something i guess to help her calm down or something i don't know
1: Well, I guess, you know, just to be friendly and offer some hospitality toward her. But she cannot wrap her mind around Joel just being comfortable, being at peace at this place. She says that his teeth rattle whenever they get below 70 degrees. He needs a particular thread count on his
2: bed. He needs all sorts of things to live as a creature of comfort. And uh, she basically implores him. She's like, you need to come back to Sicily. Like, you can't be serious. I I know you, Joel, like you're not happy here. But uh, he counters by saying like, no, like I'm happier than I've ever been in my life. You know, like you opened my eyes, Maggie. If it wasn't for you, I would still be in Sicily in that, you know, constant grind, uh, working as a doctor, just like, I, I find it... I always think that Sicily would be very different than New York, but whatever it is, Joel's sort of personality or mindset, maybe he was falling into the same rhythms as he would in a big city. And so by getting away, removing himself from, you know, that larger community, uh, he's able to, I don't know, really enjoy himself, be happier than he ever has been, um, I don't know, though. Also, like, Mananash has a community itself, too. He mentions that he has friends here. But go ahead. It seems like you have a thought.
1: Yeah. uh, I'm pretty sure that we're trailing toward the same thing, where, like, I don't believe that Sicily is comparable to New York City. Right. Literally the largest city in the (laughs) United States. Sicily has a town population of less than 1,000 people. And for Joel to say, like, it's a rat race...
2: Yeah, and Sicily, he, I like he, I don't. I think he actually uses words. He may say that exactly. He says something basically like the hustle bustle, but it's like you're talking about Sicily, man. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's like what do you mean,
1: like the literal rat races? Like, uh, like because there might be like literal rats in your place. Is that what you're talking about? Because I do not see this being comparable on those two things. So I was a little bit confused on why they wanted to go down this route. I, I think if they had just said. Uh, things are simpler here, yeah. Which that makes I sense. don't it's deny true. them. Yeah, that's probably mm. true. You know, he plays golf using like a old little little wooden stick. He carves statues. Yeah, he does simple things like that. He doesn't have the, he doesn't have the comforts of electricity or plumbing. So I would totally get that. Actu- yeah, that's a lamp. Sorry, I have my screen frozen on a on a shot and there's light. Ugh. And I was like, wait, they might have electricity. And I was like, wait, no, that's a lamp. Yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, but one thing I want to take the note of, though, is that Maggie says a line and it's going to get repeated by a different character. So hopefully you can remind me of when that happens. But Maggie says, I get it. You're just putting on a good face to make me feel better.
0: Oh. That's going to be
2: very valuable down the line. Oh, good. I didn't catch this. So I am uh, uh, i don't remember who says this next, but um, we will look out for that. Is it, is it in, It's in this same plot line or another plot line? It's another plot line. Okay. Cool. Um, that's, you know, there's got to be some reasoning behind that to repeat those exact words. You know, like that's definitely, especially like a script that is written by two people and mm-hmm. revised again and again by probably even more people. Uh, there's some intention there. Well, the next scene with Maggie and Joel, we get some mushrooms, uh, honey mushrooms, I think. Like he's pointing out these different mushrooms to Maggie and they're focusing specifically on the honey mushrooms Um, which he explains it's that, uh, our malaria, uh, it's this, I guess you could call it a super organism. Like it's just this giant interconnected system of mushrooms. Like these mushrooms he points out go, from like all the way to the east and the north and the south, like they're bounded by mountains and woods. And then over to the west, like they're unbounded. He's like, I don't even know how far they go that way, but this is like the largest, I think he says like, you know, that must be like 35 square miles. This is like the largest organism on planet earth. Uh, I did look up this mushroom on Wikipedia and it is true. Um, it's one of the, I think it's, Probably the the largest living fungus in the world, um, but I think the largest one that we know of is only about three point four square miles, which is still huge. It's in uh, Oregon's Malheur National Forest and estimated to be two thousand five hundred years old. They're also very very old, mm-hmm. um, and you know they're harvesting them. I, I think to eat, and they can be eaten according to Wikipedia. There's some. Uh, there's some debate on toxicity, like you might have to cook them or, I think interestingly enough, there is something about you shouldn't drink alcohol 12 hours before you eat them and 24 hours after you eat them. There's some sort of toxicity or some sort of, um, interaction that happens and it makes you nauseous and might make you vomit. Oh, wow. But anyway, this is our first scene with the, these, these, uh, the great mushroom, I guess. Yeah. I think that. You know, it's no coincidence that it's a mushroom. Um,
1: Mushrooms have a lot of symbolism in literature as being something that represents, like, recycling. Mm, That's great. Like, decay and growing again, because they're fungi. Mm -hmm. So they go into that aspect of things, which naturally flows into the relationship of Joel and the Capra's right there. So it all comes around and just recycles in and out, in and out. But I also think that... It's kind of neat that it's a mushroom because in my mind, mushrooms kind of have like a whimsy to them. (laughs) You know, they're like in Alice in Wonderland. They're in Harry Potter. They're in a bunch of that stuff where you see those large, bright red caps of them. And when you have the imagery of them, you naturally associate like deep woods, forest, gnomes, spirits, (laughs) things like that. So it goes hand in hand with where Joel is at.
2: Yeah. Oh, Charles, so it just started raining where I'm at. I don't know if it'll pick up on the mic, but listener, if you're hearing that, uh, apologies. It's just uh, one of those New Orleans showers, so hopefully it'll be passed soon enough. And uh, it's just interesting too. Like It's like this unseen... uh, I mean, this plays into the metaphor at the end, but it's this unseen connection because it's underground for these mushrooms that they're all connected somehow through some sort of network of fungus. And as he's explaining to Maggie this the, the enormous reach of this giant you know cluster superorganism of mushrooms, Maggie is visualizing um, like a boulder rolling down the hill. And again, that David Schwartz orchestral you know score is coming back in. We get a vertigo shot on Maggie as she's like afraid and seeing this boulder come rolling down as it's intercutting back to joel talking and we get the sense that this boulder is on track to slam joel he actually actually looks like he kind of gets smacked in the face or something like the boulder like hits him like (laughs) i thought i was gonna like roll him and like roll him from his feet but i think it hits him like sort of in his chest like face area yeah and then there's a shot of him like being flattened in the snow he like rolls over him
1: right before he gets smacked by the boulder it cuts to like a little bit of a wide shot. Uh-huh. So you're led to believe that like it's it's about – because like why else would you cut to the wide shot? Yeah. Like you know that something is about to happen to him. Thankfully, it doesn't happen in that way because that's – it It would not have played comedically. It would have played like brutally. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. They waited until like they, they cut to the border itself coming at him,
2: which prepares us. For the impact. Not to jump ahead too much, but there's another sequence we'll, we'll get to later, but there's another sequence where Joel's talking and um, Maggie visualizes like a fighter jet, like with like machine guns raining down like bullets oh, yeah. on Joel. And they pass over him like he doesn't get hit. He's like still talking as the bullets are raining down. But I was worried that he would just get torn to pieces by these bullets. (laughs) Um, So thankfully, yeah, they didn't do that either. But Charles, why don't you take us to the next scene?
1: Yeah, it's pretty similar in tone where Maggie's still worried about Joel. He's serving up dinner. He's being a good host and everything. And while they're talking and catching up, Maggie imagines, again, in her mind, (laughs) that Joel catches on fire (laughs) and gets burned to smithereens.
2: It's pretty awesome like he's opening his like little oven and his arm catches on fire and then like it quickly you know his whole body erupts in flame and he's like running out of the shack screaming. Yeah I mean I think all both of these scenes end with like Maggie just kind of like staring she doesn't say anything right? No no no, no. In,
1: in this one she does tell him she's like oh. hey you should probably leave.
2: Oh, right. This is the scene where she's like, actually, this is the soundbite that we played in the beginning Mm -hmm. where she's like, uh, if you stay here, you're going to die. So it was the last scene where she's just like staring at Joel. She saw this boulder come at him. And I was like, why didn't she say something to him? But she does say something at this point. Uh, Yeah. She implores him to return to Sicily. This reminded me a lot of the season two episode. It's uh, season two, episode four, What I Did for Love. Where, I don't know if you remember this, Charles, but Maggie has a nightmare or she has recurring dreams that Joel um, is going to die in a plane crash. Oh, I remember that. yeah, I remember that. I really like that episode a lot. Yeah, very good episode. That's the one that ends with, like, Maggie doing dishes and she's, like, listening to the music Play like in her, I think it's like Sinead O'Connor or something. I don't know if you remember that, but
1: oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I vaguely remember that. Yeah, I remember us talking about that. Um, yeah, this one is similar in tone to that in that Maggie wants to save Joel's life because she mentions that all of her ex boyfriends have all died. So now she's just playing the tape to the end and she says, No, you got to get out of here. It's your life, your death.
2: Yeah, I'm glad they brought this back. I can't remember what it was, but it was an episode that we covered, I want to say recently, where they sort of gloss over Oh, it was the episode, I think it was uh full upright position, right? Because Joel keeps thinking that uh No, maybe it wasn't that. There was some episode where death and Joel keeps happening and they just they never mention um Maggie's ex boyfriends, which is something that they used to always talk about in earlier seasons. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like something recent. It might have been full upright position where like they're in bed together and like the gun goes off, or uh, they're in bed together and Hayden Key's gun goes off. Like you know, all these like Joel's like about to be shot by a gun discharging. Hey, it's Lee. The episode I was thinking of is Upriver. It's episode eight in season six. So the next scene, we've got Maggie walking up on Joel. He's up now on this big rock in the middle of like a stream. He's fishing, I guess, from this height. And Maggie uh, is like, I can't believe like I couldn't find you this morning. And I run out here and like, you're up on this rock now. You're going to hurt yourself. Like she's concerned. You know, I'm sure she's probably, like, worried she's about to get another premonition and Joel's going to, like, fall and break his neck. And she uh, rushes up onto the rock trying to, like, get him to come down. And you can tell, like, as she's climbing up on the rock, she's sort of slipping. Joel reaches out to give her a hand and, like, she slips and he's, like, trying to catch her. He falls off the rock and splashes into the water. He's obviously not dead, but I think he says something about, like, hurting his wrist.
1: Yeah, yeah. His wrist get injured right there, which is, you know, pretty good for the situation. Do you think <laughs> yeah. that Joel was the one who fell down that thing or
2: was that a body double? I would assume body double, but let me let's watch the let us me watch the scene. That's right around uh right around thirty-one forty. Yeah, it's definitely a double. <laughs> Just because I, I don't think it would be safe to do.
1: Right, that's what I thought. He too. does. He
2: does seem to fall from like a, a decent height, and he falls backwards. You know, so I don't know. Maybe they put some safety net or something at the bottom of that uh, little stream. It doesn't seem to deep it seems pretty shallow so yeah
1: that's what i thought too i was like yeah. uh,
2: you're like unless he did like very good trickery right there like also definitely a body double when he was lit on fire and he's like running <laughs> out of the house from this uh that scene with the stove um so yeah this almost feels like a self-fulfilling prophecy thing like i think they talked about that last episode uh where ed was having this self-fulfilling prophecy and you know ed was seeing the future Do you remember that mm-hmm. um this is kind of Maggie, in trying to protect Joel, injures him, but, um, or is cause for his injury. But let's just keep moving on to the next scene, which would be again, Joel out harvesting mushrooms in the snow. And Maggie basically is coming to say, Hey, I think I should probably head back. And Joel's like, Oh, come on. Like, we haven't even had the cake yet. You know, stick around. I'm going to make dinner. We're going to have cake. And, um, I thought this was a really fun moment because um, I can't remember how they get on the, the topic, but Joel is basically saying like, uh, he's like, I, I realized that like maybe part of you wants me dead. Like it makes sense while you're seeing all these, while you're worried about me dying and you have all these foresight, like visions of me dying. It's like part of you deep down wants me to die. And then Maggie's like, hold up. You think, this is what she says, do you think I'm that petty and self-centered that I want you to die if you're happy? You know, because Joel's like, okay, now that I get so happy and uh, I'm fine without Maggie O'Connell, that must uh, that must be a deep blow to your self-esteem, he says to Maggie. He's like, the fact that I'm better off without you must be a, uh, a heavy blow. And uh, this sort of argument felt like a classic Joel and Maggie argument. And even with Joel being sort of like enlightened, quote unquote, from um, from Ma- his time in Mananash, he still seems like uh, this is the constant sort of Joel-Maggie bickering. And honestly, I, I, I'm i taking Maggie's side here. I think even if Joel is accurate in this weird like Freudian way, that's a really messed up thing to say to Maggie.
1: Yeah, I, I thought he had a better line than what he used To defuse the situation, because his defense is saying, like, no, 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 no. It's not that. It's just that, like, you're just too negative about it. Look at all this growth here. He's like, yeah, look at the growth. It's like, come on, man. That's (laughs) Yeah, I felt like it could have went somewhere if, you know, Joel, the character, or the writers themselves could have delivered a little bit of a... Just something extra,
2: more oomph. Yeah, I wanted that to go on a little longer, because I thought it was really cool that we saw that like even this enlightened Joel is still like, he's not always right, or he's like still kind of insensitive to Maggie. Like it's that classic Joel and Maggie that we see in all the earlier seasons. So I would have liked that argument to play out a little longer, or that could have been like, that could have happened much earlier in the plot line, and they could have been tumbling through that argument through the rest, yeah you know?
1: Because the way it's being depicted right now is that it makes Maggie look like she is the one that is clinging to him and not willing to let him go, mm-hmm. because whenever they have these conversations about the mushrooms and about them being all connected, that is when Maggie gets those visions of Joel getting killed. Yeah. So in her mind, we as the audience are led to believe that like if they separate, Joel dies she Ooh. can't handle that and if they had established earlier
2: on that it was oh gosh are fungi symbiotic relationships symbiotic uh, uh i don't know i think it i think it could be like you're talking about like parasitic symbiotic. Yeah, I didn't
1: know if it was a parasitic relationship, but the word I wanted to use was like a parasitic <laughs> one where like Maggie is dependent on Joel. Had they established that on earlier,
0: mm, yeah, then this yeah. would
1: have been like, it would have had more oomph behind it. On am like, oh, that's why Maggie's imagining all this. But right now, me and you are both like, no, 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 like I'm still on Maggie's side. Yeah. <laughs> that makes this a little incongruent
2: with what I'm trying to say. No, I see what you're saying. Yeah, they could have like, for plot reasons, they could have set that up earlier and it it would have paid off. Whereas here, I don't know. But I I like that, I said this already, I like that Joel is is like kind of trying to act enlightened, but I think, this is my interpretation, I think he's dead wrong. But uh, I think, you know, there's obviously many ways you can read this. Like I said, it could be a very deeply Freudian thing is probably what Joel's getting at that maybe Maggie is, as you're saying, Charles, uh, parasitic, you know, dependent, I guess, on Joel. But, um, the, you know, the, the, this is diffused rather quickly and Joel goes on with the big, the great mushroom metaphor. And as you're saying, like, as he's explaining this, um, Maggie is envisioning this gunner pilot shooting rounds all around Joel, like fly by, like the snow is blasted with bullets mm-hmm. and uh seemingly Joel is still standing and still sort of preaching unscathed and then we hear like you know the sound of like a like a like a bomb coming to, <laughs> coming out of orbit and uh it explodes and sends Joel flying and screaming but i did want to mention uh i thought this was some yeah you know, this is like the big metaphor this is the big monologue uh i tried to sort of transcribe what Joel's saying here, Uh, but here it goes. He says, the bottom line here, all of the craziness and the tension between you and I, it's based on illusion. It's an illusion of separateness, an illusion that there's a you and a me, because it just, it ain't so. I mean, we're like these mushrooms. These seemingly individual outcroppings are all part of the whole. There's no separateness here. There's no other. It's the same with human beings. It's the same with us. We're really just one part of the same big mushroom, the same big self. What I'm trying to tell you is I never left you, okay? I'm always there. Um, And honestly, like, yeah, it's a pretty um, heavy-handed metaphor, you know? Like, But I think the actor, Rob Morrow, delivers it very well. You know, it seems kind of silly just to be talking about. It's kind of an obvious metaphor at this point as we've gone throughout. This is towards the end of the episode, most of us probably can see what the writers are trying to get at. So Rob uh, delivers that text um, very naturally. And I'm also not going to knock the text either. I mean, as I said, maybe it's obvious at this point, but I think it's pretty good um, a pretty good metaphor to create for not just this, but I think it kind of fits in with some of the other plot lines as well. Just the idea of this uh, bigger community maybe, uh, invisible, not necessarily like invisible on the surface, but that we don't even recognize internally that we have such a strong community with each other. And specifically in this moment, Joel and Maggie, uh, in a way saying like, Joel may leave, but he'll always be with us, you know?
1: Right. Right. (laughs) You know, you, you almost could have actually just ended Joel, like Rob Morrow, his character could have just left right then and there Mm -hmm. it would have been a decent send-off for him but we still get one more scene with him we have the birthday cake scene where maggie lights up the candles on his cake and asks him to make a wish and joe even remarks that it doesn't really look like it's his name And then maggie says "No, no 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 that's a no it's
2: not an e so she sees him for who he is yeah yeah, they uh, they eat some of the cake. The camera is in sort of this wider two shot, and it pulls out slowly to get wider and wider. I think, for my memory at least, and uh, she like reaches across the table and holds his hand, and she tells him "Happy birthday" and "Long life." You know what I mean? So maybe that's the writer is calling into that whole thing where Joel was like, uh, "You want secretly want me dead?" I don't know, but I just took it to be a very sentimental moment between the two of them. And there's very warm, like firelight, you know, it's sort of this nighttime scene where the room is lit by, I don't know, lanterns or fireplace or something. It's just a very warm and cozy moment. And this song comes on called uh, Caminando por la calle by the Gypsy Kings. And it's going to play us out through the episode. There's actually a little, a little more that happens after this with, you know, sort of just ending montage. We get like some of uh, Phil and Michelle uh, Capra, but we'll talk about that in the next plot line. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the great mushroom. Uh, shall we rewind it back to the beginning and talk about we got Ed and computers or uh, Phil and Michelle Capra and some uninvited guests? Uh, do you want to do Ed and the computers? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Do that and say We'll save Phil and Michelle for the end. They are, you know, they are the last shot in the episode.
1: Yeah. Well, actually, in order to even get into Ed's plot line, we still have to start with Phil. Okay. Phil's showing up to work, and he is checking out a townsfolk that has gotten shingles. Mm-hmm. And one of the things about shingles is that it takes about two weeks to cure. And mm-hmm. this man had been there two days ago. But now his shingles are gone because he went and saw Ed, who administered some sort of salve, some sort of
2: cure that got rid of shingles immediately. Yeah, I thought it was great. the The patient was actually very. He seemed very shameful, very guilty. He's like, "I'm sorry, doc. Like, you know, I I won't ever do it again. Like, I I you know, I just I went to I went to Ed, and he he hooked me up with this." shaman, you know, ointment or something. And I know I shouldn't have done that. And this definitely reminds me of scenes with Joel and his reaction, uh, maybe more, more unapproving of non-traditional medicine. Um, but here it's hard to read if Dr. Capra is, um, offended by the, you know, the patient going to see Ed instead. He overall, what I gleaned from it was, he seemed very intrigued. Because he's, as you're saying, Charles, like, shingles takes, I think, like, two weeks is what he says in the scene to sort of run its course or to, to get better. So he seems just more intrigued with this non-traditional uh, form of medicine. And I think he even says it at some point in this episode. But it's calling back to earlier episodes with uh, Dr. Capra where he does seem a little more open-minded specifically also after his encounter with uh, Joel in Real Politic, the last episode, uh, where Joel sort of brings him to the light and he's like, you know, it's about a harmony between what we learned in medical school and these um, other traditions of medicine that we haven't really studied before, but there's some some value there.
1: Right. And we're going to talk about the scene more in depth when it Rightfully gets their turn, but really quickly, the next scene that's going to involve Phil and Ed is at the party that they throw. And Phil has a really quick sidebar with Ed and says, hey, what's up with that ointment that you used? And Ed says, I think it was a root pulp extract.
2: I'll have to check my notes. Yeah, he says he's going to have to consult his notes. Like Ed doesn't even know what the ointment was, but he's going to check his notes. And uh, this brings us to... Phil, I guess coming over to Ed's house. He's going over uh shoeboxes filled with scribbled, you know, notepad paper and trying to find this or that. I should have taken better notes in this scene, but he's like uh oh yeah, he finds like a um, the 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 combination for his combination lock, like for his bike lock. He's like, "Oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. where that was." <laughs> and he tucks it into his like shirt pocket, but Phil Capra is sort of watching over Ed as he's digging around. He's, uh, Ed is saying like, so maybe I like found the cure for shingles. Like that's somewhere in these notes. Like I cured shingles and Phil's like, well, you know, we're gonna have to do a lot of clinical trials, but you know, definitely something, something incredible happened. And Phil is watching as Ed is, uh, it's, it's clear, like completely disorganized Ed switches over now to the closet where he's got even more junk and he's trying to find more notes there. He finds he finds something. It says, uh, September 3rd, shingle solve, see poultice notes. So he finds a note that directs him to a, yet another note, which, you know, he, he, he's got no system of organization. At this point, luckily, uh, Dr. Capra sees, tucked away somewhere in this closet, a uh, PC. And Ed's like, oh yeah, Maurice gave me this old PC when he got a new one. And Phil's like, oh, great. Like, I can show you how to set up a database. Uh, s- like, Phil is very comfortable with computers. And he's like, I'm going to hook you up, man. We're going to get this going in no time. You'll have a better system. Uh, so you won't have to be, like, digging around in shoeboxes anymore. And um, pretty sure it's the same scene, right, where you, like, they start – plugging it in, or maybe there's a commercial break. I don't know, but they...
1: Uh, There's like like, a couple of scenes in between, but it it pretty much just goes to that. Okay, They're they're starting to set it up. And I was a little bit curious on this because they set up in a room that is different because
0: there's Mm. windows now. Let me
2: look, because I was going to... I forgot to mention, that's like the first time we ever saw whenever Ed is looking in his closet for the the notes on the solve. Mm -hmm. That's the first time we've ever seen... Ed's closet. The camera's like in the closet looking out. Um, But then you're mentioning that there's another angle. Oh. You know, it it could just
1: be an angle. Maybe it's just an angle thing. No, I
2: I see that. Yeah, yeah. There's some interesting bits. It looks like it's Ed's. Yeah, it's Ed's shack, but it's just different angles that we don't normally get in that set. Yeah, there's more
1: lighting in there, which I thought was really neat. That's true. I like that. It was very felt very 90s-esque.
2: I don't really know how to describe it. <laughs> yeah. And like the door, it, it's true though, because because the the painting on the wall, the wall paint is sort of this teal aqua color. And then the door to his bathroom or his closet is um, pink. I think that's the closet too, because I remember in the episode uh, Dinner at 730, when Joel goes through that, the door that I think would be right there, um, Ed's like, oh no, that's the closet. You know? because Joel's like I need to go to the bathroom. Oh, He's like, "Oh, you, yeah, yeah, yeah
1: you're right." Yeah, but otherwise this is the scene that establishes Ed's fear of the computer. He doesn't outright say it, but we mm-hmm. get closer and closer toward it. And I think what's really important in this scene is Ed saying for the computer, he says that it just keeps going on and on. It's bigger than we think.
2: Mm. And yeah. so
1: we're getting this theme of connectedness, things that are wide Still coming together.
2: Yeah, I actually have a little sound bite for this so we can play that.
0: What is it, Ed? Computer. Yeah? <sighs> scares me. It scares you? I turn it on, makes that little beep, and all the hairs on the back of my neck just stand right up. You know, it's like all of a sudden
2: there's somebody else in the room with me, and he's just sitting there glowing, humming asking me all these questions, abort,
0: retry, ignore. Ed, it's just a machine, a tool. That's what I try to tell myself, Dr. Capra. It's just so big. Big? Yeah, inside the little box. That thing just goes on and on. Tell you the truth, I think it's a lot bigger than we are.
2: I also like that it's, you know, the vastness of the contents of this, like it's just all inside of this computer, but it's also so vast. It's also something we don't see, you know, how vast it is. And then you can relate that as well to the sort of invisible quality of this connectedness of the the great mushroom.
1: Yeah, but what makes this really curious is that, I'm going to skip around a little bit right here, but the things that they used a computer for, Realistically, it's just real-time information. So, for instance, Walt uses it for the New York Stock Exchange, which you know you could just get from a newspaper. Mm -hmm. And Phil wants to use it as a database, something that just compiles information. You can kind of get that with like Microsoft Excel, something like that. The thing that they miss out on, in which everyone now in the year of our Lord 2023 uses, is that it's a device for communication amongst people. And that's the thing that,
2: at the time of filming, 1995, I guess it just wasn't really wasn't there yet. At least, like, not as much as we have, it. we see it today. You know that? Yeah, the I
1: know. I know that it existed. Mm-hmm. I know that he had chat rooms back then. It's just that I, I don't know. Like in my mind, I want to say that the concept of people talking to each other on the internet really, really skyrocketed. Around like 2006, 2007. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying you didn't do it beforehand. I'm saying that it just got really popularized. Oh, yeah. We definitely
2: we definitely did it before for sure. I remember like 2005, 2006, 2007 was like that's the beginning of YouTube. I remember that. Yeah. Being like such a – that's just a milestone in humanity.
1: Well, that one got like <laughs> the MySpace era. That yeah. was the uh, Facebook time. Though I want to say that the thing that preceded it was the AIM chat rooms.
2: Yes. AIM. AIM America, Instant American Message. Online. Yeah. Yeah. Our American. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, I was just thinking also Ed's fear, his anxiety here with computers. I wonder what he would think about Alexa because he talks about this computer is like in the room with him and it's like there where like we literally... You know, have something that is listening or can listen to us actively in the room with us. You know,
1: in a weird way, I okay. So like we've talked about this before. We're like, all right, if a reboot happened, we'd be super happy. We're like, you know, more northern exposure. We get to see the cast, see what they're up to and everything. But it would be very interesting to hear their takes on current environment. Mm -hmm. But in a way, it's kind of like a blessing that you don't because. The thing that makes Northern Exposure very interesting to watch is that it's a time capsule mm-hmm. of just what the 90s thought of what the future was. Yeah. So it was very quaint on its views. Yet, you know, some of its ideas are still prevalent today. Exactly. But if you try yeah. to like drag that into today's time,
2: you just don't know if they have like... Would it be too goofy? Like I can not yeah. imagine it being like, would it be too silly? I don't know.
1: Exactly. Because it, it's an exponential growth of what we've been experiencing since their time. So, yeah. it, it would have been like they weren't as, as savvy. I guess.
2: <laughs> I I think. Uh, I do think it could work in a modern thing, but it would. Yeah, it would be definitely. That would be the pitfall that you would want to avoid is like being too silly, or I don't know, like talking too much about technology. I guess, or trying to trying to do, I don't know. It's it's very different, as you're saying. Like you couldn't necessarily do the same things that they're doing in this scene, I guess today with those characters. I, I could right. it's hard hard for me to imagine at least.
1: Yeah, like it's already difficult for us to even process this now. Because <laughs> yeah. we're we're rolling our eyes at this idea. I mean like, yeah, technology bad, whatever. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> like we, we've come to understand the language that they're brokering. And if you try to take this into 2023 and you start making comments about social media and all that, there's almost a feeling that, like, it just sounds like old man yelling at clouds.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Like, they did accurately predict the future of what we are now. But, like, if you brought it down here, it would be strange for them to comment on what they think the future is like. Because the future kind of is happening now. Like, we're, we're living through it, whereas in their times, it felt much more golden. Like the computer hadn't been like fully fleshed out. Now it's like too fleshed out. Now we're like, all right, maybe we need to put a stop to AI or something like that.
2: Like stuff like that. Yes, exactly. Well, Ed is still here stuck in the past and even like trying to uh, wrap his head around computers, even like in these early days of the nineties. And the next scene would be Ed walking around with Phil because I'm, I'm assuming Phil is trying to get Ed's mind jogging basically saying like okay Ed like you were out in the field and you picked this specific plant you know you made this salve it started out here in nature and Ed is like trying to pretend like the real world like he's trying to envision the real world as if a computer would look at its own like file hierarchy he's like you know this uh you know blade of grass is like a uh, Know a file within a menu, like you know, he's like trying to like pretend he's like, we can do it without a computer, like we're this is like the real world is just the same as a computer or whatever. Um, and Phil's like, it's good, okay, we're good, we're getting there. It's like, you know, think about it. You picked one particular plant. There had to have been a reason you picked that plant. You know, what was that reason? What were you thinking? And Ed's trying to think of his. Like maybe it was like the, the, the visual appearance of shingles, something about the plant reminded him of what shingles look like or something. It's just kind of like, they're, they're not going anywhere fast. And Ed is quickly spiraling into despair. And he's I think he screams like, I lost the cure for shingles. Like he's totally bereft and, you know, degrading into just like self-pity and failure he says, like, it was fear that stopped me. I'm a coward and a failure. That's actually, this is what I have written in my notes. I don't remember what happens in the scene. Does he, like, run away? Does it cut away? What what else he, happens he here? He storms off. He does storm off from Phil. Hmm.
1: Yeah, and we've been talking about it all our episode. You can read the fear as a fear of technology, a fear of not accepting what the future can hold, a fear of something that connects us. And mm-hmm. now in the next scene, he gets that turned around. <laughs> like all classic television writing, you know, this is this is his turn. So he goes and visits Walt, drops off uh, some groceries for him, tells mm-hmm. him they're out of Scotchgard. And Walt is using the computer to look at the New York Stock Exchange, seeing things happen in real time. Uh, you know, he used to be a broker in his past. And he pulls Ed over to tell him about this uh, this software that he's got going on. And he gets some <laughs> like pretty sweet like 90s graphics. Yeah. Just like, what type of graph is that? I forgot. Is that like a bar graph?
2: Yeah, it's like a bar graph. He's got these bar graphs, like these graphical readouts of like his, he's like, hey, look here, these are my trap lines of like my, I don't remember what it was, like gophers and like. It's like, it's Wolverine, Ferret and <laughs> Mink. And he's got like, you know, one, like how many of each that he's got the trap lines set for her or something it's like also but it's like because, yeah it's go ahead. like not
1: like the information Clip art of there like the, <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh the are you saying the information is just like num like 90 or, like mates or something
1: like, uh, yeah, yeah okay so what i'm trying to say here is that like <laughs> this is not like like a pivot table or anything like that like someone's really breaking down the data yes. this is just like a very simple numbers it's like i have 120 wolverine quarterly yields Eighty for the ferret, twenty for the mink, and then Walt says like, "Oh man, the other trappers they would kill to have this data right here." It's like it's just a record.
2: It's <laughs> yeah. just a record, like a logbook, basically. It's yeah, not he's not a, muddy balling this. <laughs> <laughs> but he also has something about. He goes to the next page and he shows like migratory patterns he has mapped out. Again, I don't know if that was like something that he computed with a computer. He might have just like you know drew them or like. You know, you could have drawn that on a piece of paper or whatever, right? Or you could have like pulled a map or something for migratory patterns. Uh, Quarterly yields. He also says, "Yeah, it's it's kind of it looks nifty though. It's pretty. It looks fun." And Ed seems to be surprisingly unafraid. So he's like, "You know, come you know come pull up a chair here, Ed. Like, let me explain binary code to you." And uh, he explains like zeros and ones. And uh, I think it's interesting. Ed says something like. Binary zeros and ones. That's uh, you know that Leonard Leonard told me that that's how great teachers explain what the universe is. Reality is one, and nothing is zero, and the universe is made up of lots of combinations of reality and nothing. So yeah, I mean I think maybe we could kind of compare that to the previous scene where Ed is trying to see the world through a computer's eyes, maybe um, trying to understand what the world could be. As a computer sees it, and then realizing now that that this computer, which speaks or you know understands things in a in a binary code, well, at the end of the day, maybe at least according to Leonard, that's all that you know the universe really is is nothing and reality, something and nothing, zeros and ones.
1: Right, and that's what helps Ed uh, get over that fear. Which, by the way, I, I, I want to bring it back to that because I just realized Mm -hmm. that's where that line that I was talking about comes in Mm. so earlier I said that Maggie has a line that says you're just trying to make me feel better but when Ed and Phil are outside of that field talking yeah, Phil is trying to calm him down saying like, yeah it's fine cure for shingles, you know maybe you did, maybe you didn't but you know it's all right." and Ed says, you're just saying that to make me feel happy Mm -hmm. so there's two instances of characters saying like, "You're trying to control my own evaluation of who, of what I should be feeling," mm. and in a way, you know, it's read as like a control thing. Interesting.
2: What do you, yeah. uh, what do you read into that?
1: For Maggie, it's a little bit of an easier case because yeah. you know she has the whole thing about Joel dying if they leave. It's an easy visualization right there. But for Ed, it's slightly more complicated though the the mechanism that it's using is very easy, we talked about before. he just has a fear of technology, but in Ed's case, I think it's him trying to say that like the fear that I have is more immense than you can imagine, mm-hmm. so for you, you understand how it works, yeah, but for me, it's so wide and vast, I can't even comprehend it, so you're just trying to calm me down. By doing that, but like you're downplaying what I'm feeling. And it isn't until he goes to Walt and Walt breaks it down to him to literally its bare components of zeros and ones, Mm -hmm. does Ed no longer fear it. So That's a good point. Yeah. Now Ed can come to understand how the mechanics of this is coming together.
2: That's great. Yeah. If we're comparing it again to the title, The Great Mushroom, it's like Ed sees the superorganism. He sees the vast immenseness of this giant organism, you know, and that scares him. But then breaking it down to the binary code is like picking the honey mushroom, you know, for dinner. You know, it's just like the one piece. We see the individual and how it's all connected. And um, yeah, I did also, before we leave the scene, I want to talk about the beginning of the scene when Ed enters. He's here to make a, a grocery delivery to Walt. Walt's on the computer, and what does Ed do? Ed knocks on the door, and uh, Walt's like, who is it? Or no, Walt's like, oh, let yourself in. It's open. Uh, Charles, surely you remember what Ed tells us in in the first season. He says, Indians don't knock. It's rude. Oh, yeah. But he's, he's knocking on the door. I'm probably, there's got to be, we should make a super cut of every time Ed knocks on the door, because I'm sure it happens more than this, or... Like, if this is the only time it happens, why? <laughs> like, why did he knock on the door? Well, at least now Ed has a better understanding. Uh, he's lowered his stress levels, his fear of the computer. Now he goes back, at the end of the episode, he goes back to his shack and he's talking to his computer. And he's like, I got you a surge suppressor. And he has this little plug or something in his hand. Mm-hmm talking to his computer I got you this surge suppressor I hope you like it and he turns on the computer we forgot to mention that when it turns on it says I think it says good morning Ed like at the the, on the screen there's text that says good morning Ed and um, Ed says oh yeah Maurice programmed it like that for me And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a cool shot. Like we see the big, bold text, good morning, Ed. And we sort of see in the reflection of the glass, we see Ed's face there looking at the computer. Um, That's all I had in my notes. I can't remember. Is there anything? um, It's it's a pretty simple scene, right? He's just there wanting to maybe be friends with the computer now. (laughs) Right. Right. Treats it as a person
1: that that reminds me of the th- there's a line in the steve jobs movie the one that aaron sorkin wrote mm-hmm. where in the first act joanna is trying to figure out why steve is so obsessed with making the computer say hello he keeps recompobulating with it he gets his engineers to work on it all throughout the presentation right up until the last minute And then Joanna says, please, you have to tell me why it's so important for it to say hello. And Steve says, Hollywood, they make computers scary things. You see how this reminds you of a friendly face? That the disc slot is a goofy grin? It's warm and it's playful and inviting and it needs to say hello. It needs to say hello because it can. I think about that a lot, how kind of weird Steve Jobs is. But also, like,
2: you know, it's, like, kind of sort of true. No, it's very true because, I mean, we can see it in Ed in this episode, which today we think is silly, like someone being afraid of a computer. But when computers were not even a household thing, even before the 90s, like older – I remember even my parents, you know, now my parents use computers. But when we first got a computer, my grandparents specifically, they – still struggle with computers but you know, they're, they're much better now but uh but you know like older people um maybe this was just us being kids at the time we were kids but I just remember our elders were very like computer averse uh I don't know if you would even call it like a fear but they just weren't interested in using computers so Steve Jobs vision in this uh, scene, was trying to make something inviting and friendly and makes you want to use it. Not to be afraid you're going to break it or you're not sure how to work it. It's so many keys and so many buttons and so many menus. But something to invite you in, it says hello, and it makes you want to interact with it.
1: Yeah, and I really sympathize with that because, you know, I think that, like, ultimately they were afraid it was going to be like the computer from 2001, you know like how yeah. it was going to it was going to yeah. dominate or something like that uh and like i have like a similar fear of like ai like chat ai where i'm like uh, i don't even want to learn it because i'm too afraid it's going to dominate <laughs>
2: <laughs> chat gpt um well yeah thankfully it seems like you know this is the start of a beautiful friendship between ed and his computer you know, this isn't the first time Ed has used a computer. He's written screenplays on computers at least once, probably a couple times, I think. Uh, but I guess this is different. Like, you know, that was like in the office at K-Bear. Maurice was probably like, here, I got the WordPad open. You just type on it and you can like, he's only in one program. Mm-hmm. But turning on the computer, being greeted by the command prompt, you know, maybe that's what scares Ed. I forgot to mention also that, Something was wrong, it seemed, with, like, the disk drive, maybe. Oh, um, yeah. And Phil was like, oh, we can figure it out. It's probably, like, probably nothing's wrong. It's probably, like, this. We need to go, like, Phil was definitely a maven with computers and uh, really knew, like, how to talk about it. But Ed was really confused and maybe scared by this command prompt and this error, you know, asking for, you know, improper prompt, you know, redo do this again or whatever it's something about that uh freaked ed out but anyway all's better at the end let's rewind to the beginning and focus on Phil and Michelle we can get to that scene that uh we say is both our favorite scene in the episode
1: yes they are preparing for a party and they are preparing cantonese i want to say um at least i'm led to believe that i'm a little bit confused with their the structure of their sentence so Michelle comes in and says, hey, I got that hoisin sauce that you're looking for. And Phil says, because, you know, Pacific Rim cuisine is nothing but Cantonese without the hoisin sauce. So I want to say Mm. that one more time. Because Pacific Rim is nothing but Cantonese without the hoisin sauce. Is he saying that if you have the hoisin sauce, it becomes Cantonese? Or if you have the hoisin sauce, it's not Cantonese?
2: Uh, yeah, I can see why <laughs> this is confusing. I think it's that first one. He said, I would assume, cause he mentions Pacific Rim later in the episode. I'm glad you said that then. Cause it's like, oh yeah, he says something about Pacific Rim as a, maybe the style of food. So maybe adding the hoisin sauce makes it Pacific Rim. Wait, wait, what's the, sin- <laughs> what's the sentence? Read it one more time for me. Pacific Rim is nothing. Wait, Pacific Rim is just Cantonese without the hoisin. Wait,
1: what is it? Okay. So he says, did you get the hoisin sauce? Because, you know, Pacific Rim cuisine is nothing but Cantonese without the hoisin
2: sauce. I think what he's saying is if you don't have the hoisin sauce, it becomes Cantonese, which honestly, I this, th- that that's, is not, this sounds accurate. <laughs>
1: but it, it's like blatantly not true, though, which makes me think that like it's either I don't want to believe that they were that misled on their information because that would be egregious. I, I think that like it's um the sentence structure is misformed. Yeah. They 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 should have taken out like a but or without or something it like that. It could
2: also be like the actor performed it, you know, like you know, maybe said it wrong and that's the one take they decided to use. Right. They didn't
1: like they didn't really think about it <laughs> right there. But okay, you need the hoisin sauce to make it cantonese cuz that's like big time vital.
2: Ah. Uh-huh. Like that's, that is yeah. like That is that's a cornerstone of of Cantonese cuisine?
1: Right, right. It, it, it's a sauce that uh, it, it includes soybeans, fennel, red chili peppers, and garlic. You go to any Chinatown market, it's going to have aisles and aisles of this stuff right there. And like I said before, it is pivotal for Cantonese cuisine.
2: Yes. So they did get the hoisin sauce, or Michelle did uh, get some hoisin sauce, but she says that Ruth Ann's store, the, the Szechuan peppercorns didn't arrive on time. So they're not going to have that. But she also brings a letter uh, from Ruthann's store. This letter was addressed to their residents from three years ago. So it's um, clear that they, obviously they moved from LA to Sicily, but they've apparently moved around a lot in the past three years. It turns out Uh, this letter, she says, has been forwarded all over the place. And um, it's something from like, it's like, hey, happy new year, best wishes from your cousin Connie. And Phil's like, who's cousin Connie? Like they can't, they don't even know who this <laughs> distant relative is. Right. Um, which I thought that was just a really cool moment. And I'm also glad that it does come up later. Like it's it's a little um, setup for later.
1: Yeah, I think that's actually a, a really good writing trick that they're using right here. So I actually thought, that the letter was about to become a pivotal part of their plot line mm-hmm. because of the way that it's introduced, it's very linear. They're doing an activity, some sort of new thing pops up that is now the focal point. But what's really great is that it's being used to set up a larger point in the future, and it's mm-hmm. a really good point that they use when it finally arrives. So I, I am impressed by that. Yeah. That's what makes the script come alive right here. Cause It's not set dressing, and it's not the main plot point. The set dressing for this scene is them preparing uh, the meal for the party. Mm -hmm. That's like, you know, what's happening in the background. That's their setup and everything. The plot line is that they're establishing that they have moved around a lot and that they're setting up a party. That is Mm -hmm. the main thing that's happening in the scene. So the introduction of this letter is something that's just flown in, and then we're gonna just see it come later. It's gonna pay dividends.
2: Yeah, it's something that says a lot about their characters, but it doesn't nece- as you're saying, it doesn't necessarily advance the the scene that we're in now. But it does come out like as a surprise later. It's it's great because it functions like on its own as just like a little bit of characterization, and then it becomes pivotal to uh, their sort of arc in this episode. So uh, they're getting ready for this dinner party. We will go to the next scene where they're actually throwing the dinner party, and there's tons of people, all the townsfolk of Sicily, it seems, have come to this dinner party, and they're quickly realizing, Michelle and Phil are quickly realizing that they did not prepare enough food, and that word travels fast, I guess, because, uh, you know, they invited a certain amount of people. I think they mentioned in that first uh, scene that Maggie's not going to be able to make it, and they're like, oh, that's probably good, because, you know, we— we're not making enough food or we'll have enough food for this many guests. And when the party's happening now in this scene, you know, Marilyn brings like two randos that we've never seen before, you know, Shelly and Holling show up and they brought Ed and it's kind of implied through the writing that Ed wasn't necessarily on the invite list. Mm -hmm. Like Shelly and hauling basically like convinced him to come. Um, there's also a funny moment where Maurice comes into the kitchen and he's like complimenting Phil on the cooking, but he's like, "I would suggest next time to use a Szechuan peppercorn," you know. And he's <laughs> saying like, "You know, all these ribs are done. We need like some more." And he's like, "Well, there's no more, but here's some chopped up uh, chicken wings." That was funny too. It's like, how do you? Uh, there was like this crisis where Phil's like, we don't have enough food. And and Michelle's like, oh, it's okay. We're going to chop everything into smaller pieces and we'll serve everything buffet style. And Phil's like, how do you chop chicken wings into smaller pieces? You have to like cut the bone, I guess. Um, so that's what they end up doing here. Yeah. I mean, you you mentioned already, he he pulls, Phil pulls that aside and asks him about that ointment. But I think one of the biggest moments here is... uh. The introduction of Marilyn's, like, those, as I mentioned, those, like, rando older people that we've never seen yeah, before.
1: Yeah, Ellie and Warner. Ellie and Warner.
2: Yes, who in
1: the next scene, Marilyn is going to say that they need to spend the night because Shoehorn,
2: Shoehorn? I want to say that. I can't remember, I, but that sounds right. That sounds right.
1: Yeah, the, the town, presumably, where their home is, has been snowed in, so they got to stay the night. Obviously, Phil and Michelle don't want that. It's like 2 a.m. or something like that. Oh, it's funny. Uh, yeah, by it's, the way, it's all,
2: quick. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, we're probably going to say the same exact thing. Uh, is that hauling? So he's like, hey, I'm going to go run to the brick and go grab some <laughs> more booze. And they're bring like, another no, time yeah. 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 Party's winding down right now. But, like, yeah, frost to him for wanting to keep the party going. Yeah. I, I think that's great. Party
2: animal. And he's like offering it to them for free, too. He's like, I'm going to bring you a whole keg right. of beer.
1: <laughs> Are you the person that leaves the party early or stays early? Like you're like the last folks uh, staying, just drinking that beer.
2: I would definitely say more often than not, I'm the first to leave or not the first, but like I'm early to leave. I'm on that earlier side, but I mean, yeah, there's definitely like when I'm with a lot of close friends, you know, there's no reason for me to leave. I'll stay, you know, until the sunrise or something, but oh yeah, I haven't done that in a, a, a bit. I'm, I'm, I'm more of a, uh, early to bed <laughs> to now. I'm very boring. <laughs>
1: No, I'm definitely with you there. Like if I go to a party and it's like a friend of a friend's party, I'm like the first kid out. I'm (laughs) I'm like,
3: like, I'm so, but if
1: it's like, if it's with friends, I'll I'll be, I'll be the person that's like sitting outside. um, What type of table was that where it's like,
2: (laughs) it's like graded? You know what I'm talking about? It's like a folding table. I know what you're talking about, though. Yeah, it's like one of those, it's one of those fold-up tables, but it's got the grates.
1: Yeah, it's one of those oh, wait, tables you you're about one of those like
2: iron, like those metal tables. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: <laughs> we have like a Mesh. lot of deep conversations on.
2: <laughs> <laughs> very specific table. Yeah, that reminds me of like maybe like a dormitory, like quad, like outside sitting area where everyone hangs out. Uh, I don't know why that just reminded me. That's very vivid <laughs> memory. Those like... It's almost like a crosshatch metal mesh table. That's what you're talking about. Yes,
1: yes. <laughs> well, we recorded the podcast episode where we said that we were on the road, mm-hmm, yeah, and we were traveling to a wedding. Well, like on the wedding after party, it was in the bride and groom's oh, room. Oh, was it one of those tables? Yeah, we were hanging the outside out outside on their yeah. deck. I was, I was hitting that up, yeah, and it was right next to the Colorado River. So beautiful, and it was really beautiful. It was nighttime. It was kind of chilly, but not too chilly. And I remember just having like a very great conversation with uh, one of our mutual friends. Yeah. And yeah, like the, there was a raging party going on inside, but just like outside, we we're just on that specific type of table. Yeah. Just drinking, just <laughs> chilling,
2: talking heart to heart.
1: Yeah. I, I'm sorry, listeners. We're, we're really, this is like such a,
2: we're really rambling i apologize for that <laughs> it's okay hopefully people like that and that's why they listen i mean i would i would assume though because our episodes are so long but i guess we do also talk a lot about what happens in the episode uh so we'll try to keep more on topic here let's see oh it's fish head fish, fish head, head is, plow fish head is where they're um they're from what you're saying yes, Ellie and Warner okay, cool fish head, yeah. And um, you know, Mich- I can't remember if it's Michelle or Phil, but they're like, Well, I guess these things happen in Alaska, you know, you get snowed in and they have to spend the night. And then I think it's Phil maybe who says, Well, Marilyn, aren't they staying with you? and she says, No, uh, so you know, again, it's like both Marilyn and her friends here, Ellie and Warner, don't say a lot of words, so it's they're just leaving. Phil and Michelle here to kind of stand awkwardly and be like, yeah, uh, this sounds great. You know, um, we've got a pullout couch that folds into a bed and Michelle's like, which we're going to sleep, you know, we'll sleep on that. You guys can take our bed, of course. And, uh, yeah, they're going to be bunk mates for the night. Turns out it's going to be a little longer than that as we, as we talk about this plot line, but, uh, yeah. So let's, let's talk about the next scene. Now, do we actually see them going to bed or do we just see them the next morning? We just see it's them like, the next yeah, morning. Yeah, because Phil's not even there, right? It's Michelle. Yeah, well, no, 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 well, Phil is there. Oh, he's getting a shirt. right, okay. This is, Um. I don't think I took notes here, but he's like, they're in the kitchen, right? It's Phil and Michelle, and uh, he's like, they're still here? Like, what's going on? Is that, can, what's going on in this scene?
1: Yeah, essentially is that. So they wake up and they have a little bit of a spat where Michelle is saying, like, oh, I woke up, like, really terrible. I didn't have that specific pillow that I needed. Mm-hmm. And Phil says, you're not going to get a lot of sympathy points out of me because you're the one that offered <laughs> up our own bed. <laughs> and that's a common, common argument that they're going to be having throughout the episode is who said what. Mm-hmm. But... Mm-hmm. Uh, Phil needs to go get his shirt. The other two come out and they're like, Oh, okay. You're going to be staying here. And then Michelle makes coffee and she tries to make some, some small talk with them, but they are people of little words. Uh, they, yeah. don't, they don't say much and it's to their benefit because, you know, it's really hard to
2: force them out of the house. <laughs> yeah. But them not talking. It's true. Um, so yeah, Phil pretty much has to leave immediately to go to work, to the office. Um, and, We see the next scene with Michelle sitting at her computer. Uh, I couldn't tell if it was like she's having computer troubles again, but I think I figured it out. She's just like hitting the backspace button a lot because she gets out of the room, goes into the main room now. Like She leaves her office, goes into the main room where her guests are working on a puzzle on the table. And... She basically says, like, oh, I uh, have this trouble writing this piece. I forgot. Did, do you remember what she said she was writing about? It was a carry-on. baggage carry-on? Yeah, something like that. And she's like, I got to figure out, like, something to hook the reader.
1: Yeah, I don't blame her at all. Because if you think about it, if you're writing a piece about, like, carry-on policy, which is, like, it, you, I can totally picture that piece mm-hmm. being done on some sort of travel magazine, how do you actually write the first paragraph? (laughs) I was actually thinking about it myself. I was like, if you handed me that assignment, how would you write that? And I'm like, okay, well, like, presumably I'm not trying to make like a hack job. So (laughs) I can't be like, do you want to save money? Let's get (laughs) right down to it. Like you need to start with something saying like, Millions and millions of Americans are traveling every single year, and amongst those travels, we need to bring the thing that we all bring, carry-ons. Mm-hmm. But now the airline has enacted a policy, blah, 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 blah. But that itself is kind of sterile. Right. So Michelle is right. There needs to be something a little bit better than that.
2: And it's hard with such a... Something that's not clickbaity, but also not, you know, too sterile, as you're saying.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's also like carry-on policy isn't like uh, <sighs> off the top of my head. It's, it's not
2: like a quote-unquote very sexy thing to talk about. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, they don't really get into that too much, uh, but it's it's more, I think this scene to me was uh, more of Michelle, you know, being like, okay, well, I don't want to bother you guys. Let me get back to work. And then she ends up being like, but actually, hold up. I think I saw like a piece here that would fit perfectly in the puzzle. And she keeps doing this dance where she like leaves and then comes back and I wrote down that Michelle might actually be pretty happy to have the guests here, you know, even even if she doesn't fully realize it, she, I think um enjoyed having them sitting there so she could like speak and like bounce the ideas uh, that she has about how she's gonna write this opening paragraph. you know, having someone to talk to, I think is a lot easier for her than just sitting at home alone with this deadline, with this assignment, like writing on her computer. Not only does she like talking with other people, bouncing ideas, uh, I think she just really likes hanging out and, and working on this puzzle too, because she ends up like sitting down and being just completely drawn into it.
1: Right, but before that fully manifest, uh, there is still like one short scene between Phil and Michelle where they talk about like, hey, they gotta go. Um, I think Phil starts the scene off of saying like, When's the last time we even had house guests? And she said, about five years ago when my mom came in for like a short little layover. She had some lentil soup mm-hmm. and she went on her way. And essentially what's happening here is that Michelle's saying that like, you know, you may be tired of them, Phil, but I have to stay with them all day. Yeah. So we really got to get them out. Tomorrow is the day.
2: Yeah, they make it. Phil makes an ultimatum. He says tomorrow they go. And uh, let's see. The next time we see them, it's actually Phil walks in on Michelle and she's working on the puzzle alone. She says that the guests are out looking for rocks and uh, Phil's like, okay, well, when they get back, obviously this is the time where we tell them that they got to go. And um, he's thinking about it for a second and he's like, I think we're going to have to manipulate a situation to make it happen because- what's his reasoning? Is it because they like, they don't really talk much or because it's just like, it it would be, it's just like uncouth in this culture for them to like kick them out. We have to like, Yeah, it's pretty much that one. It's like this is a faux pas in Sicily culture. We can't like kick them out. So we need to manipulate a situation like, you know, if the house were on fire or something. And she's like, we're not going to burn our house down. And he's like, oh, like we could um, break the heater. Like I'm going to break the heater and say that we have no heat so that they can't stay here. Um, And he's just about to do it when they they do walk in, um, Ellie and Warner. And, yeah, I mean, they're just kind of like, what happens here? Like, they don't really say too much, but um, something something happens and Phil falters and is like, I'm going to make a salad for dinner. Like, what what exactly happens? Yeah,
1: pretty much that. It's <laughs> like, so right before they meet them at the door, you know, they steal the resolve. Yes. And Phil mm-hmm. says like, okay, we're definitely getting <laughs> them out. Like we gotta face this as adults. We can't be trying to manipulate the situation or anything like that. But when push comes to shove, they they just can't do it. They start talking about the stones that they collect. Ah, yeah, that's it. Phil starts talking about getting a salad ready, and it just prolongs their stay.
2: Yeah, they mentioned what it was. Is like Ellie and Warner mentioned that they found this particular type of rock, and Michelle's like, "Oh, I actually wrote an article about that," and then Phil later's like you shouldn't have said anything about like, once you started that conversation, it was too late. You know, you start talking about rocks. I like, I didn't know what to do. I I said we would make a salad, you know? Um, (laughs) So they do end up, yeah, that's the next scene, right? Is they're up at night again on this pullout couch bed and it's not going great with Michelle and Phil. They're arguing exactly about what I just said. Like, you know, why'd you have to talk about the rocks? Why are you trying to make a salad? And, Michelle steps out you know she grabs her robe and steps out onto the porch and Phil is like what are you doing come on like you're crazy like it's cold out like can't just like storm off and um, I have a soundbite of this scene this is the scene uh, that I really liked you know I think Charles this is uh, this is would you say your favorite scene in the episode yeah definitely let's listen to what happens in this scene
0: I like having them here I mean I- I don't, it's so inconvenient, but I do. It's like... Thanksgiving, when, when Uncle Anthony and Aunt Colleen and the cousins would come and stay for the week, and there wasn't any room, and all of us kids had to sleep on the floor in the den. Do you realize we've moved seven times in six years? God, our life is like an endless trail of change of address forms. There are boxes I still haven't unpacked since we were married. We have no roots. We're cut off from our families. And you don't even know who your cousin Connie is. No, 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 I, I remember last night. Uh, she's on the Chicago side as Pearl's kid. But you're right, I and mean, I guess we have moved a lot. It always seemed like a good idea at the time. The first sign of any problems. Fight with mom and too much traffic. Sewage in Santa Monica Bay. We packed the China. Yeah. What are we looking for, Phil? And why don't we ever find it?
2: Really great performance by Terry Polo here. Good writing. I I loved that memory of her childhood and when her family would visit for Thanksgiving, all the kids would have to like sleep on the floor because there's just not enough space. Did, did did you ever have like I don't know? Did, you didn't have a lot of family in Louisiana, right? So uh, I had no family yeah. in Louisiana. So like, well, you're just your nuclear family. Yes. So I don't know if you experienced anything like that, but I definitely have memories. Maybe not exactly like Michelle's here, but you know, sleepover or like being crammed together and having that large community surrounding you. It's almost as if you don't even mind the limited amount of space, you kind of enjoy the feeling of being cramped together, you know? And also just like this scene here, this monologue reveals uh, this sort of secret that the cappers have that we're let in on now, that they've been running. They like keep running from place to place and they don't know exactly why, or at least they're realizing now, it's like, why are we continually moving. And it's almost like makes perfect sense for this couple. Like that's why they're in Sicily. Cause I think we talked about this before Charles. And I think we maybe even mentioned it on like a Patreon episode or something where it's like, uh, why did each, why do we think each character came to Sicily? You know, like why did they set out? And, um, a lot of it is like, you know, to escape the world, you know, to run from something else, you know?
1: Right, right. And for the Capra's, it seems like theirs isn't as concrete as it is more abstract and existential. Mm-hmm. Whereas they just ran because that was in their nature too. And so this time they wanted to make it work a little bit more. So they chose Sicily.
2: Yeah, and I, I wrote down like the part of the reason why I really like, obviously like the, as I said, the monologue reminds me of childhood and community and family and things like that. But also like, as I said, it kind of like lets us in on this secret and this question, something that they're struggling with. They're constantly running. And now we believe as an audience, it's like, they're going to stay here in Sicily. They're not going to run. But um, I, I don't know. I also wrote down, it's like, I want to discover this with them? Like, why? Why do they keep running away? Is this going to be part of their character? So far, as we've seen them in these three episodes uh, that they're in, is like they're constantly, almost it seems like they're constantly um, bucking against living in Sicily. I think there's a little bit of that in this episode too, even though it's like not explicit anymore, where they're kind of suggesting like, uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to sit this one through. We're not going to leave. You know, did they say, did they mention something like that early in the episode? Can't remember. I might be thinking of um previous one, but just that feeling of them together agreeing, being like, yeah, this is where we're doing. This is like, this is where we are for now. Like, we're going to stay here.
1: Right. They need to establish their roots. They need to connect with the townsfolk right here. Mm -hmm. I think that what really sells the scene from a writing perspective is that um, Terry Pello ends the scene by saying, what are we looking for, Phil? And why don't we ever find it? Mm -hmm. The phrase, and why don't we ever find it, is so much stronger to end on than saying, what are we looking for? Had the scene just ended with, what are we looking for? It would have served its purpose. There's no real flair to it, but Mm -hmm. it would have gotten the job done. But when you extend it and say, and why don't we ever find it? It has a final resolve to it where it says they've already tried and they know that it's a problem. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you just end by saying, what are we looking for? It makes it seem as if they just arrived at the problem. But the problem has been here since the beginning. They, yeah, They have realized it, but they've never said it out loud. And that's
2: why she says, and why don't we ever find it? And that's what sells the scene. It's also like great for their characters. It's like a recognition of this flaw. And it's, um, for me, I think I was trying to, I maybe mentioned this before, but I was trying to find something to latch on to with these characters because so far they've just been like, oh, like pretty nice, normal people who are sort of like a, uh, something to bounce off, like that Sicily bounces off of. Like it's like a window into Sicily or it's just like a receptacle for Sicily to like bounce off of so we can see how like, you know, people react when they're put into Sicily. Like 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 the like us, the audience, when we go to Sicily, what it would be like. But I'm like, what is it about their characters that we can latch on to? And with Phil, like he offers sort of like a, um, You know, this could be like a new type of doctor who is trying to blend Ed's shamanism with Joel's like Columbia School of Medicine. But what I love about this now and that final question is it reveals their flaw. It it also makes sense retroactively too of the episodes that we've seen them in, that this flaw of them like constantly trying to run away. Now we know this about them. Now we can see how that's going to play into hopefully play into the rest of the season and like what sort of struggles they will find in staying here. As you said, building roots. Are they going to try to run again? Why are they going to, you know, they're going to learn from that. And like, it's going to, I don't know, be, be a more interesting, stronger character.
1: Right. That brings us to the next scene where they wake up in the morning and the guests have left and they hurriedly try to chase them back. They're saying like, well, they can't have gone far. We can make, like, Belgian waffles and get them in. And when they're while, while they're talking about this, they've left them some parting gifts as a sign of hospitality and thanks for them for letting them stay so long. It's a pair of sandals.
2: Yeah, some, like, fleece-lined slippers. Uh, at first, I was like, did they make those? Which maybe they did, but I don't know. It kind of looks like maybe they just bought them from uh, Ruthann's store as, like, a gift or something. <laughs> I, I don't know. But, yeah, it's funny. Like, they... Uh, so badly wanted, you know, Phil and Michelle so badly wanted these guests out. And now in this scene, Phil's like, if I move fast enough, we can still all have breakfast together. You know, I can get them back and we can do the Belgian waffles that they love. So, yeah, I mean, oh, there's actually a little bit more where, because uh, I, I was about to run to the last scene, but I think um, the next scene is actually like Phil with Marilyn in uh, in the office, in the lobby. And he's basically asking Marilyn, like, do you think we might have, like, offended uh, Ellie and Warner? It's like, could that have been possible? Like, did they say anything? And Marilyn's like, no. She's basically like, you know, I wouldn't worry about it. Like, they're fine. Yeah, that's basically, it's just the scene, I think, to show that Phil is, like, concerned or or whatever, right? Does anything else happen in that scene?
1: No, not really. It ends with Phil looking out the window and then it cuts to the snow fields with the honey mushrooms.
2: Yeah. I wonder what he's looking at out there. Like, is he like trying to be like, trying to look for Ellie and Warner deep out there? Like he wants to find them. He misses them. But I think, you know, obviously he says something like, I think he says to Marilyn, like they're great people. Like we really liked them. I think obviously they, they really enjoyed the company, but more than that, more than just like wanting to have Belgian waffles with Ellie and Warner, I think they're ready to uh, to be more open to friends around them and family and just having a community. That's what's going to be the solution to their uh, constant running. Hopefully, Sicily will be, you know, their home. And the last scene with Phil and Michelle uh, it comes in at the end as we sort of described when. You know, Joel and Maggie are eating that birthday cake and that song by the Gypsy Kings is playing. We cut to Phil and Michelle at a table pouring over this puzzle. There's like a fireplace going in the back. There's a bottle of wine. We got the music once again, like playing and we see their their slippers. They're wearing their slippers that they got from Ellie and Warner. And there's no dialogue, I don't think, right? They just kind of like share a kiss at the end.
1: Yeah, I think the most important thing in the scene is the symbolism of the puzzle piece. Mm. So it's a it's not so heavy handed, but it works. It's a theme of connecting, right? Trying to fit into the puzzle of Sicily.
2: Yeah, we're all just like one mushroom in a giant network. You know, that's there's one piece of the puzzle, but when you put them all together, it forms the super organism, this bigger picture. Um, so, a puzzle great metaphor to tie this all together to community. All right, Charles, it's that point in the podcast where we're going to bring on a guest. And in season six now, we're inviting fans of Northern Exposure to come on and talk about Northern Exposure season six, talk about this episode, The Great Mushroom. And for this episode, we have a fan from Twitter, Liv. Liv is going to give her thoughts on The Great Mushroom. So Charles, let's listen.
3: So I think my favorite part of Northern Exposure as a series is the fact that every episode feels like such a tight, consistent, and well-thought-out piece of writing. Um, And this episode, I think that it really shone through in Joel's plot and and then in Ed's storyline, Joel talking about the great, you know, underground, connected mushroom system that is the biggest organism in the world. And then you switch over to Ed finding his computer and being terrified of the internet because it's this big, vast thing that could be more powerful and bigger than all of us. And in the end, he learns to accept it like Joel learns to accept his new life, however crazy that may be. Um, And I think that's so beautiful. And another thing I appreciate about this episode was, um, you know, really the only newcomer that we have seen come to Sicily was Joel in the very beginning of the show, and he's really been our only... Um, outside perspective. And we've seen him learn the culture of Sicily throughout the whole show, but it's been a while since we've had a new perspective and the Capras coming in and being similar to Joel in the sense that they were used to a little bit more finery in life and then slowly getting used to the Sicily folk um, invading their life in the way that's so normal and seeing them be so Polite about it, but confused and scared, and then ultimately loving it. Such a joy to watch. I love this episode. All right. That was
2: Liv's commentary on The Great Mushroom. And right off the bat, she focuses on what she loves about Northern Exposures. Just, you know, more often than not, every episode is tight, consistent, thought out piece of writing. You know, we've got on this episode Diane Furlov and Andrew Schneider some of our favorite writers in Northern Exposure. And I forgot to mention that Liv herself is a playwright. So, you know, she would know a thing or two about writing herself.
1: Yeah, it's a strong contender for one of the better episodes for this season. And, you know, she points out the theme that we're all interconnected because Ed is learning about the internet and how more powerful it is than all of us. And it's the same way that he learns to accept it, just like Joel accepts his new life. So we got a motif that's running throughout the episode. And, you know, I I have forgotten that the capras are also being invaded in this episode. Mm -hmm, Like mm -hmm. she had mentioned as, you know, in a weird roundabout way, that's kind of similar to like how fungi attack.
2: Oh, interesting. Yeah. We've got these spores of Sicily being the, uh, what were their names? It's like Warren and Ellie. That's what moose chick says. Sorry. My notes are on the other computer, but, uh, uh, so yeah, th- those are like the spores of Sicily, those two people that <laughs> infest, uh, Phil and Michelle and they make the interconnected mushroom, the superorganism. Yeah. I mean, it's just a great, um, it's a great metaphor, a powerful message, and it's just wonderfully woven throughout so much of the various storylines. We've got that through line there. Liv also seems to like the Capras as a new, fresh perspective, you know, in in Sicily. We had that with Joel in the earlier seasons. And then there's a certain point that was kind of like, you know, Joel was like, uh, he's, you know, fully baptized into Sicily. He's like, I'm a Sicilian now. And it just seemed like that sentiment had played out at least twice, like maybe two or three times where it's like, uh, yeah, I mean, Joel's like not not a foreigner anymore. Like there, there there's certain things when it's like, uh, Oh, this is like the yearly, this festival. And Joel's like, wait, what's going on? And Charles, you were like, wait, Joel's been here for what? Three, four years. Like, how has he not known that this has happened since he's been here? (laughs) So yeah, with the Capra's, we sort of get that feeling again of uh, the outsider coming into Sicily, a new perspective, a new way to experience the culture and this so far has been probably my favorite episode with the Capras. I'm excited to see what they're gonna do in the rest of the season.
1: All right, that was the guest commentary from Liv. Liv, thank you so much for writing in and providing your thoughts for this episode. Loved it. All right, next week we got season six, episode twelve, Mikasa Sukasa. Now, unfortunately, we've already recorded for that episode, so I can't guess. Yes, we've banked a lot of episodes.
2: <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna have to gonna have to start recording this like recording your uh, predictions before we even watch the episode or something. I don't know. That's like a whole other step. But uh, the way we've been doing it this season, you know, you're familiar with uh, Mikasa Sukasa, but we're gonna talk about it all next week. So Charles, I'll see you then.
1: All right, I'll see you then.
2: Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to BeVal Y'all for the podcast artwork, and thanks to Liv for being our guest. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at Podcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter, and if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Northern Overexposure Podcast. And of course, thank you for listening.